House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, you are fortunate enough to be back in the House of Mystery. I'm broadcasting from the House of Mystery bunker in Canada, and I've got Michael Hawley in Buffalo. That is correct, Al. <laughs> and and he just turned really old, I think, not just last week. Uh, yes, 58, but, I, but rumor has it I have the body of a 57-year-old, though. Well... That's, that's debatable. Um, now, we've got a treat. Um, we've got yes, we do. Uh, from the UK. We've got uh, historian and author, and well, he's just uh, loaded with tricks. It's uh, Neil Story. Thank you for being here, Neil. Well, thank you. Greetings across the water, and uh, I send a message to everybody, both sides, the big old pond, just. Hang in there, folks, with all this COVID issues. Be good to each other. Be kind. Be safe. I hope everything will work out. You're a historian, and that's interesting. So you kind of know about the uh, pandemic flu of, of the early 1900s. Um, did they have the same sort of response then, as far as you know? It, this is interesting, because they say that disasters, things like floods, often have a 50-year cycle, and pandemics have a 100-year cycle. And black, believe it or not, Black Death tried to make a little bit of a comeback. We've, we've never truly found a cure for it. And, th and that's only really dealt with by uh, isolation, complete isolation of an area. And it, it came ashore from a boat in Great Britain. But they managed to cut off the area. Uh, a few people did die. But that reared itself on, on British soil. So when, from 1918, you've got what they called it the, the Spanish flu epidemic, that spread into the early 20s across Europe, and do you know that it killed more people, men, women, and children, killed more people than were killed in the First World War. And remember, the First World War, for, for example, for Great Britain, was between 1914 and 1918. So it's a considerably longer war than many American citizens might realize, for us anyway. Right. Did they try to protest, too, back then, or was it... Um, it was a, di a very different world back then. And people, they did what they were told, because it was the way they were raised. They were raised in a very... You've got to remember, these are men that felt a patriotism enough to go over the top. You mustn't forget that. Patriotism was very important. Uh, and it was felt by people from all nations, you know, even people without a monarch. You, you know, if you look at America, you've got a president. But you've still got soldiers, they're volunteering or drafting, they're going, they're doing their bit. And they're, they're facing some very challenging times. That if you had a breakdown in the discipline, that it would, be, it would have been a lot worse. It, there, would have, there were examples uh, of mutinies. Uh, but they they were contained. Uh, so when it came to the flu epidemic, people could, uh, they listened to the warnings, they, they got them through the channels of notices being put up. Um, we didn't have 
radio at that time. You have to remember you had to rely on newspapers, information through your door and local police. And if you didn't obey that, then, then you, you, you felt the sense that you'd be letting your neighbours down, you're letting your friends down, and, and you could get into trouble. And it really meant some people respected the police and, and the military authorities. Um, so, yeah, for the, for the flu epidemic, they were pretty good because they could see why. They understood why you had to stay in. Because if, if you don't stay in, you'll catch it, and it, it could, well, kill you. And, and I think it, it's a, a great tragedy that, that I've heard by the, the British news this week that America has now lost more people to COVID-19 than died in the Vietnam War. And, yes. and I, I think that, that's a very, very, very sad state, and all of our hearts go out to our friends and, uh, and our many friends in America and, and everybody in the States. Right, and, and Canada. Uh, it's, it's terrible. So, for my money, the lessons are all there. <laughs> as, as a historian, it's there. I don't see it as anything to do with control. Uh, everybody is entitled to their views. And, and of course, we all respect that. But... Um, I, I think it's quite clear that it's real, it kills, and if you, and it's quite an easy way. You don't need to go even have an injection to get, to get over it. You've just got to stay in and, and, you know, reconnect with some family, enjoy some books, enjoy some TV, cook, cook at home if you can, you know, just make sure and just be good to each other. That's the key. Well, we don't want Michael cooking. <laughs> well, I, I, hear, I hear Mike's a bit of a demon in the kitchen, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's why my wife kicks me out of there. She's she's an awesome Italian chef. So uh, if I get in there, do the dishes, because I love her food. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Just just give him a beer and he's fine. A fine lager. Yeah, fine lager. A, a fine lager. <laughs> that is correct. Now, talking oh, sorry, talking about Jack the Ripper, I was going to say this kind of ties in. So in the late 1800s, um, what was London like? What was it like to live there, and what was the atmosphere? Like, um, were people working? Was there a lot of crime? What was going on? Well, in the 1880s, we have to imagine this is the London of Queen Victoria. Now, Her Majesty Queen Victoria had an empire, the Great British Empire, that spread all over the world. It didn't have, it didn't control every country, but they used to say it was the empire upon which the sun never set, because at some point in the day that the sun would be shining on some part of the British Empire. But as we all know, sadly, in some parts of the world, in Africa and India, there are people in abject poverty, and. When you think of Victorian Britain, you think of all these fine skirts and dresses and the high street pictures that you'll see on engravings and photographs. But that was half the story. You have got an underclass, an underbelly that was locked away. Like a lot of things in Victorian Britain, 
if they didn't like the look of it. For example, there were public executions until the 1860s, and there were complaints from people like Charles Dickens, the well-known author, that this was a vile public thing to do in public. Execution is wrong in general. And all the British authorities did was they closed the doors on it. They said, right, we will conduct executions behind closed doors in prison. And so they did until the 1960s. So there's a lot of things hidden. There's a lot of things that are ignored. But if you went to the east end of London, you have, you, London was a very, it's the heart of the British Empire. There is great wealth there, but there is also abject poverty. And the poorest part of London was the East End. This is where, remember, there's, there's no social security checks. You'd have to rely on charity. Men would want to go and work in the nearby docks. If you look on a, on a, on a map of London, this sort of U-shape where you see, maybe if you see the British soap opera EastEnders, the East End is just above that loop that you see on the aerial photograph. And so men would go to the docks, they'd queue up, but if there's no work for you, there's no money for you. So they end up kicking around the streets, scraping by what they could, picking rubbish uh, out of bins off the ground to eat. Some people were so poor they would even have to pawn their own boots to try and get some money. And of course this is the tragedy of the East End. That women that, that, that ended up there uh, were so poor that sometimes they would sell their bodies to get another drink or get a DOS for the night in a, in a, in a, in a DOS house. That's, it's pretty incredible. Um, now, so why is Jack the Ripper still, still uh, held on to everyone's attention all of this time after? And why are so many people um, so into it and so involved that they... Um, have you know uh, an array of, of suspects you guys have your your meetings your magazines there's books there's movies there's series uh, what keeps this alive well I think what it did initially in 1880 was that it, 1888 it exposed this underclass and of course we're always interested I think that's why a lot of people are interested in murders, it's because they're, they're not into the gory side of it. But what they want to do is go beyond the barriers, beyond the tape that you see on a modern crime scene. Uh, they want to go beyond that and get involved with the investigation, the story behind it, the circumstances behind it. And because since 1888, this is a mystery. You know, they, there comes a point where cases have to officially be closed, but you'll, more modern audiences will be more familiar with the term cold cases. Cold cases that are 20, 30, 40, 50 years earlier get opened again. And for many people, um, the Ripper has never uh, been closed. It certainly went uh, into more of a lull, I think, from around about the uh, early 20th century up until maybe, probably just around the time of the Second World War, just after, 
uh, around about that period when you get books starting to mention it, books on mysteries, and then you get uh, Ingleby Oddy wrote his inquest book, which talked about uh, people going on this remarkable tour of the crime scenes. Not these were not regular tours; these were members of the crime crimes club or barristers or, or old police officers. They all kind of get together and go on these little walks because at that time all of the sites were still there. You could stand on the spot. And then in the 1960s, particularly the 70s, you see more of a renaissance with people like Tom Cullen, who was able to talk to people who were kids at the time. And he wrote this very good Autumn of Terror, which is one that really sort of got us in. I think it captured a brand new lot of imagination. Uh, there's Dan Farson, uh, people like Melvin Harris as well, and and of course the, the Stephen Knight, the the, the fine, this sort of uh, final solution, uh, this answer to it that emerged. Uh, he didn't devise the whole story. It was a story that came by a somewhat circuitous route that involves the royal family, the, the queen's surgeon, the artist Walter Sickert, and embroils it into them a Masonic cover-up that even fingers, you know, the, the Queen's uh, grandson, Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence and Avondale, as Jack the Ripper. How seductive is that? When you say it, it sounds great. <laughs> and, Neil, one of the uh, authorities of authorities is uh, Stuart Evans, uh, 50 years worth. And in 1995, he put out a book that was a rediscovery of uh, the suspect, Francis Tumblebee. And what happened was is that the very next book from an authority on that person that I take seriously is your book, The Dracula Secrets. Well, and, uh, and the reason for that is just what Stuart Evans did is he had to stop research after two years. And he was hoping people would... Uh, you know, pick it up and continue. And in your book, you have these letters from Francis Tumblebee himself that when you read those letters, you can start to uh, peer into the mind of that, that, that suspect, which, uh, which I would love you to talk a little bit about that. Well, I must say that uh, we, we got kind of up to Tom Cullen and Dan Farson, and I will certainly... Uh, freely recognised the late great Richard Whittington Egan and Martin Fido and Paul Begg and they're the guys from the kind of yes. 80s and, 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 and Paul's still going very strongly we've sadly lost Richard and, and Martin who I counted as a friend uh, a fellow academic and, and we shared a great love of history and then beyond our work there are other authors and very good authors too but Stuart has combed really Great Britain in the days before the internet he had a great network of book dealers uh, antique dealers collectible shops and he combed it this is when it was enormously hard to, to draw on this material, you had to have a good reputation, you had to sometimes put your money where your mouth is, you needed to know what to look for, and you had to be assiduous in your research at the time. 
and Stuart Evans was, was that man and the books that he produced before people could so easily look on, on the internet and before newspaper searches it is a truly remarkable body of research yeah and when I came to write my book I, I wanted to do a book that sort of looked at an overview of London in the period of Jack the Ripper, it became Jack the Ripper's London, and it was done kind of day by day, and it looks at ghostly stories and crimes and murders, and it, it pointed out quite a few different aspects. For example, that knife crime, fatally, fatalities through knife crime on the streets of London, knife crime murders, very, very rare in the 1880s. For example, I was expecting to find knife crime rife. It wasn't. So anyway, when I was researching this, Stuart Evans shared my publisher. And my editor said, look, this is crazy. You guys don't know each other. You seem to work the same way you think alike. Um, she knew Stuart very well. She said, look, why don't you two get in touch? Well, we did. And it was a remarkable bond. Uh, it was and I'm sure if Stuart wouldn't mind me saying it, it was like father and son <laughs> in, in the history world. Because he is generous, he is honest. If you're talking a load of rubbish, he'll tell you. And he'll tell you why, and he'll explain it, and he will show you the books, the sources, that prove that that's, that's wrong. If it is wrong, or if there's a way that, well, maybe it could be, maybe it couldn't, it, we look at the evidence without bias, you know, People say he's the Tumblety man. He is in that he, he, he had this letter offered to him amongst uh, a number of letters that were originally sent to George R. Sims. But he's more than that. He's a genuine crime historian. He's, if you've got the passion, if you are the sort of person that would go and do that extra mile and miles beyond, then Stuart will like you. And, and I consider it a great honour to count Stuart and his wife Rosie uh, as friends, good friends that we go and visit when we get the chance, busy, busy lives, and now we're in isolation. But yeah. what a great man. And having got to know Stuart and, and really felt that, that, uh, that infection, that enthusiasm, hearing what Stuart had to say and the kind of I wishes he wishes it, you know that he could get back to America to do more research this is before we really knew you Mike um, we, we've learnt as time has gone on you know to do this job you've got to have friends in the States you've got to have some friends in Ireland you've got because Tumblety is an international Jack the Ripper suspect yeah but what happened for me was I, I've always loved gothic horror uh, as as a genre, true Victorian ghost stories um, and 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 Dracula. I mean, that was one of the big things for me uh, when I was a young man. The, the sort of iconic Bela Lugosi and and Christopher Lee, terrifying the life out of me because he's in colour. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I thought, I, I want to know more about the man who created Dracula. And as time went on, people said, oh, we don't know much about him. There's not much known. And I always thought that was rather sad. That Bram Stoker, why don't we know about the man? Oh, well, there's not this, there's not that. And thanks to Stuart's work uh, following up 
Thomas Henry Hall Caine. Now, Hall Caine was the greatest author of his day. He was the first man to sell one million books in the English language. And Hall Caine uh, was a great friend of Bram Stoker. They both idolised Henry Irving, the greatest actor of his day. Bram Stoker was the acting manager at uh, the Lyceum Theatre. Hall Caine came along as a guest. And the night they met, it was either going to be love or hate. <laughs> because, you know, it could be a jealousy thing that, oh, but, you know, but they get on. And they got on enormously well. And it was through that connection. There was a documentary featuring Stuart about the discovery of his letter, where there was mention of this archive on the Isle of Man. Right. And I suddenly thought, hang on, Dracula is dedicated to Homi Beg. Now, that's Manx for little man. Hmm. And that was the name given by... The Thomas Henry Hall Caine, that, that was her pet name for him. And the dedication in the front of Dracula is to Hall Caine, Homie Beg. Mm. And at that time, the letters which were in, in the Isle of Man archives were not released. It was part of the Hall Caine archive. Uh, they had a, it was roughly ten years they had to, they'd been, been released and then they had sort of ten years to sort through them, catalogue them, because there's fascinating letters from uh, Rossetti, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, uh, Wilkie Collins. Uh, you think of great luminaries of their day, the, the writers that he corresponded with. There's a lot in there. And I helped go through the last box where we found two more Tumblety letters. Wow. And you can imagine that we thought there might be a handful we had no idea that when I got there, I was able, after the first day, to ring Stuart and say, you're not going to believe this. I always called Stuart Gov. In, in the <laughs> British Police Force, if you're the senior officer, hello, Gov, I've got something to report. It's on all the TV shows. You know the sort of thing. Gov, right. <laughs> you're not going <laughs> to believe this. This is the greatest concentration of Ripper letters from, a, from a, a, you know, a contemporary Jack the Ripper suspect that has ever been found. Yeah. It was an incredible cash. It really was. And, and I'm telling you, when you, you can tell that Francis Tumbley had to have written those letters himself because he was writing to, you know, his, his friend. He would not have had someone else write those letters for him. They would have been a personal letter to you know, Hall Kane himself. So that uh, it's a it's a treasure trove of information. And both my books that I wrote, of course, I used your book as uh, I cited your book a number of times. Well, Mike, when I got those letters, you could imagine I was very very excited, and I did want to have some sort of analysis. We knew that their provenance was beyond. Uh, any question. They'd been in crates and boxes for years and years and years, properly stored away in a, in a, you know, a recognised archive. There are gaps, of course, in, in, in the collection because of the way they were stored for, for decades in Hawkeye's own lifetime, you know, and things went missing from his, little, his summer house, his writing room. But the provenance is good, but I wanted somebody to look at these from 
not just a graphology point of view, so the graphologist that looks at handwriting, I wanted a forensic document examiner to apply modern skills, uh, a prop and I paid her, you know, the, the correct sum of money that for her professional, the, her name is Ruth Myers, mm -hmm. and she has worked on some of the infamous cases in Great Britain, people like the Ipswich Ripper, uh, and and and, and the, the there were two young girls killed in a notorious case in, in Cambridgeshire as well. She she's been involved with these cases. She's a genuine expert witness, and so I sent her some copies of these letters and got her to perform to do just what she would do with no indication of who it was written by, but just to look at them and, and she confirmed it. Although the handwriting is very different between some of the letters. They are all by the same man. It is from his disturbed mind, really, that, that it shows all these different personalities. And, I, and I've got to say that I would like to pay tribute to Mike. You see, we can only do so much in Great Britain. And... The American newspapers, I can't access everything online. I don't know where to look. I'm no expert on America. And I've got to say that the, in, the American torch is very, very much in Mike's hand. And the, t and the various uh, historians and tumble tea researchers in America that seem to be pretty darn good at talking to each other and this is, the I think, one of the greatest things of, of Francis Tumblety as a suspect, that because he is so good that people tend to get on with one another when we're researching him. Right, right. We call ourselves Team Tumblety. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> We've all got to work together, but I think that torch is with you, Mike, over there, because you have forged forward taking those letters to places that that I, I, I could have only dreamt of when I wrote the book. Uh, I, I was hoping that one of the television companies that I was working with would pick up on the analysis of the handwriting with regard to a letter known as the From Hell Letter that was sent to George Lusk, the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, uh, with half a human kidney. Now, when, uh, Mike and I had a chat a while back, and I understand, is it in America that somebody's actually picked up on that analysis? Right, and uh, actually, uh, Stuart Evans knows about uh, her. Michelle Dresbold out of Pittsburgh, she had uh, looked at the From Hell letter, and she matched it up with Tumblety. And then, uh, so both, but of course, uh, when you look at the, uh, the ripperology as a whole, the, just as you were kind of uh, alluding to, some people don't take that too seriously, but then again, in certain cases, we can. And uh, so that, uh, and to me, I think that we still have more to go, especially with the, the cash that you discovered with that. And question, do you think that there are more letters there? Yes, I, well, not in in the archive on the Isle of Man. I I'm absolutely convinced because they are very thorough in 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 the uh, Isle of Man archives that they cherish what they have, 
not just the Tumblety letters, all of the material that they have there, they're very, very good at making things accessible. And it is a pleasure. Wendy Thurkettle, I take my hat off to her and thank her and uh, the Isle of Man archives for being so generous when they helped me with my research. Right. But beyond that, because Hall Kane lived in this big house called Greba Castle, and his uh, residence was in, in the, he, he did a lot of his writing in a, in a sort of summer house, which became a bit of a dumping ground. Now, I think in the same way that some places that store lots of records, it gets rather tiresome, and a box or two get chucked out. Uh, without We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step by step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Too much discrimination of what is in them. Uh, no doubt he would have prized certain letters from Rossetti, his correspondence with to and from Bram Stoker. You, you know, he's, he, he treasured his Stoker material. But other things, like the Tumbleton, maybe, I think... I think there were some that were thrown away. Now, I think there were people that were pretty canny on the Isle of Man because Hall Kane did not like signing autographs. Hmm. And one of the greatest content of the Hall Kane archive were lots of these letters. And we thought, wow, these look exciting. And they had to be carefully opened, you know, an archivist there. Um, but it turns out that these were people sending uh, picture postcards of Hall Kane, often with a return envelope saying, please, would you sign this for my autograph collection? And he never, he never signed them, he never returned them. He, he did not like signing autographs. You, you can see them there, there, I should think, there must be a, well over a hundred of, of these unreturned, and probably more. They were just the ones that I saw. And, and I think people were pretty canny that if you had something from the greatest author or, or greatest selling author of his day, you won't have heard of him today, most people, but he was enormously popular back in the day. And so letters from the man, a signature from the man would be a highly collectible thing. Wow. And, and so that's why over these years, these batches of letters have turned up, and they are in private hands. And thanks to the, the kindness of, of, of a number of those people coming forward, um, modern collectors or people who have inherited 
uh, old collections of uh, autographs uh, and, and letters from, you know, great uncles or great granddad uh, and allowed me to access them. Uh, they're rather interesting. They, right. they really are. So I think there will be more. All of, all of the Tumblety Hall Kane letters that I am aware of and I published, they are all the ones that are in the Isle of Man archives. So, the so nice that, thing about that too, Neil, is that you discovered, which I consider the only photograph of Francis Tumblety, and what's really interesting about that photograph was that there was an earlier photograph, supposed photograph of Francis Tumblety, that was actually on Tumblety's 1871 autobiography, helmet, uh, like a Prussian helmet on. Oh, yes. And it is not the same person, in my opinion. And so what I did was I discovered uh, Francis Tumblety's nephew was General Charles Fitzsimmons and found a photograph of him and compared that photograph to the photograph that you found of Tumblety. And there's, a, uh, there's a program where they, it scans the photograph, will give you a percentage of chances and if it said above, it would be chances that's a relative. Wouldn't you know it gave a hundred My God, what? that's absolutely incredible, isn't it? So that's... Oh. I knew when I... When I this, the photograph came from one of the private collections. And uh, on the back, and it, it was one of the photographs that was originally sent to uh, Hall Kane. And it's even signed on the back, affectionately. When Tumblety always signed off to him, it was affectionately yours. Yeah. And it was FTMD. And it's the same handwriting. It's absolutely right. And so I knew that I could be confident in this reveal to the world that it is Francis Tumblety, the person that owned the letters and photograph had no idea. Uh, they did not put that in my hand and say, this is a portrait of Francis Tumblety at all. Uh, they said, here is the collection, here it is, it's been built up over a number of years, and there are some photographs, which included some actors and actresses, and there it was. Uh, you can imagine, I almost fell through the floor. <laughs> but you see... The New York Historical Society had this copy of the Tumblety book, and that's the picture we all had to go on. Yeah. And I think for a while there were people that didn't like Tumblety on the grounds that they had visions of this man wearing jangling spurs, a cape with a fur collar, and a spiked helmet striding through the streets of Whitechapel as Jack the Ripper. And I thought, no, for goodness sake, no. And I thought there was, there was a, certainly a similarity uh, to the man there. But what swung it for me was certainly the handwriting, the provenance, the look of the man. And when I compared it, there's a, an earlier uh, Tumblety booklet, which has him as, he's got quite bulbous eyes and what looks like a very ludicrous moustache mm-hmm. uh, on, on the... And if you compare those two, there is quite a likeness to it. So I thought, well, there's got to be something in this. 
and in fact, I I was convinced. I, why would anybody else sign and send a photograph? Because Hall Kane would recognise it's not. Uh, yeah. It's not tumbled tea immediately. I mean, as far as I can tell from the letters, the two have been intimate together right. in, in some form of homosexual relationship. Uh, we can't be clear about how uh, intimate it was, but they're certainly spending the night together. <laughs> right. Well, what's interesting, but it helped researcher to find out, well, that fits Tumblety to a T, that he would have a young man uh, and his, as, as like a model for him, because that was 1871, which means he was 41 years old, and that photograph is a young 30, 20-some, 30-year-old young man. And there was, uh, at the time, he had uh, a young man named Mark A. Blackburn who would wear his clothes afterwards. And so you know Mark A. Blackburn was his same height, probably, yeah. and he was probably a, a handsome young man because Tumblety had an affection for those. And so, and so what... To me, I believe that's Mark Gay Blackburn. And so right now I have feelers out to find a photograph of him, and that would be exciting to, to verify that. That sounds very highly feasible. But in the same vein, I wouldn't be too surprised. You know, that he may have even... I wouldn't say employed, because he's very mean at times. <laughs> but it, it could just as well be any young man that kind of struck him that he rather liked the look on. Oh, yes, you look like a younger version of me. Would you mind posing for this photograph? I'd like, you know, I want to show a younger me. And you, you, you can understand his persuasive ways. Tumblety was enormously persuasive. Uh, he really must have been quite a... He, I mean, I, I dislike the bloke intensely in some ways, but he must have had quite a charisma. Yeah. What do people have to look forward now with uh, newer stories or, or things that are, that are discovered? Like, uh, that's interesting. I, th I think I would like to look at the, the, the victims of Jack the Ripper in, in, in general, because the, dear old Martin Fido coined a phrase the canonical five, and it certainly works very well. There's, there's a, a lot of logic uh, to say, yes, it's rather like a canon of work, as sinister as that work may have been, but the canon of five victims ascribed to the killer Jack the Ripper. I will emphasize that this is not my discovery. I think it's a discovery that's really been uh, brewing over a number of years and is a, a, quite a cumulative thing between uh, profilers, uh, people that have worked in, in clinical psychology, uh, researchers, both academic and amateur, because let, let's face it, there's some pretty good amateur sleuthing going on out there too, uh, but it, it's a widely shared thought now that there were six viable victims uh, of the killer known as Jack the Ripper. And this comes from an understanding of profiling and how serial killers work. Uh, this has been looked at on both sides of the Atlantic <clears throat> by people like uh, John Douglas, Robert Ressler, 
back in the day that have looked at the profile of Jack the Ripper. And I understand the FBI still use that as a bit of a case study that's quite useful for, for teaching those uh, learning the techniques of investigation. And the idea is that uh, the sixth victim was before any of the canonical bef five, before Polly Nichols. Now, Polly Nichols, uh, she's the victim on Bucks Row. She's in late August. In early August, in the early hours, the 7th of August, 1888, the body of Martha Tabram was found on the first floor landing of a tenement known as George Yard Buildings. And she, she was a, what they would call in London an, an unfortunate. And I think we do need to be clear that some women were full-time prostitutes, but in the East End of London, the reason why so many women were absolutely terrified that they could become victims of Jack the Ripper is that they lived uh, life hand to mouth. And they, they might be doing okay one moment, doing a piecemeal job or in a, in a relationship, and the next thing you know, the, the old man's gone or he's died and you've lost your job and you're destitute. And you've got, you'll end up selling your body on the, on, the, on the street. It could be you. So we have to remember that. And I think that's important. And Martha Trabram was found on this landing on George Yard building, and she had been stabbed 39 times. So now, I, I challenge anybody to grab a, uh, just take a pen in mid air, or just make a fist, and just stab into thin air 39 times. And you think of the anger that must have been in, in that killer. So Neil, I'm going to do some research right now with you since you're here because uh, I have a question for you. That Martha Tabram, she was uh, August 7th and what's interesting is Mansfield's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was being played at the Lyceum Theater and it was and the first show was I think on the 5th of November and then the 6th of November it had it was in the papers and in the papers even some reporters were making comments that that transforming into a, a Mr. Hyde type at night hopefully that doesn't get incite some kind of uh, activity and what do you know here's Martha Tabram the next day so in that Lyceum Theater the business manager was Bram Stoker yes it, the Lyceum company at that particular time were on tour so that's how Mansfield came to have the stage. But what Brown was doing, he, he was working in Scotland at the time uh, and on the tour. So he was able to see the case from both sides. So he would be reading the newspapers, because uh, it's a long journey by train, so he could get up to speed uh, with the case, but also... You know, when he's having to touch base at the Lyceum and going to see his family, who lived uh, lived in London at the time as well, uh, he he's got a very good perspective on uh, the the crimes and what's happening and, and and the take both on the street. You see, that the thing was that people would after a night at the theatre, 
you finish around midnight or a little after. London came alive at night. You know, you'd get on, onto a penny coach or catch a handsome cab, but a lot, a lot of the gentlefolk, they like to ride on one of these sort of penny coach, and it's a short ride from theatre land, where you had the Lyceum and other theatres, and they'd go and have a look round the East End, and they would watch these folks gathered round hot braziers, the hot potato sellers, and the gin shops, and the pubs, and there'd be fights on the street. Slamming would be if you would tend to try and stay there. If you oh. got out of the coach, a bit like what Jack London did. That was true slumming, moving amongst the belly of the beast, looking like one of the locals. But uh, they were the, the toffs, <laughs> the nickname of the posh devils, they would, they, it would be taking a walk on the wild side. Sometimes they would refer to it as slumming. Oh. Uh, if you got out of a coach, that was a very different, quite dangerous experience. Because if you've got to imagine that the streets, the main street, Whitechapel High Street, big broad street, that's, that's okay. In fact, you had people with quite a lot of wealth because you had the London Hospital down there. They were living on that frontage and there'd be stalls and all sorts down there. But if you went off that street, you'd be in some of the most deprived streets up the alleyways. Like if, if you went up uh, George Yard, up by the White Hart off Whitechapel High Street, uh, that's abject poverty there. You see, it's it, it was a dodgy thing, and, and if you went up one of these alleyways, you know, with a with a woman of the night, an unfortunate, you paid your money, well, it could well be that she'd have an accomplice up there in the dark, and they'd do what they call shag-bagging, which is when they have a sock filled with clay, and they'll either whack you across the head when you are incapacitated, because the, uh, the unfortunate woman would, would bend forward, flip her skirts up, she wouldn't lay on the ground. Uh, and you would not, once your breeches are dropped, and you start, you're in a quite a vulnerable situation, um, that's when they, the accomplice would shag bag, you could all thump to the throat, you'd be knocked out, you'd pocket watch, money would be nicked, and then the next thing you know, you'd have, have a mutcher come along, uh, or, or a felcher, and that, that means felching around looking for um, any money that's left, or, or they'd take your clothes, and and the and the last and the worst of them, you know, these sort of felchers, they would come along. They'd even take your boots. You'd be ne next to naked. And you'd be lucky to get away with your life. <laughs> right. So that was a real walk on the wild side, and that's. But people would do that. They'd sometimes go and fight with the locals as well. You'll see engravings of gentlefolk. Gentlemen in their top hats and best dress for the theatre, on their way back, uh, with a few of their gentlemen friends, they'd go and have a little bit of a thump up with some of the East End rats to see if they, they can hold their own against them. It was a very different world at that time. But anyway, the point of Mansfield, he, his performance, if you think of the way audiences reacted to Psycho in America, this is how his performance affected people in London. It, the terror became infectious. People would go anticipating being frightened. And my God, he delivered it. And, and so there was a lingering thought 
from the early 19th century, the, the whole notion of man and machine, this idea of uh, Frankenstein, that man could create man who is dead from all these body parts, use electricity to bring him back to life. This was man sort of control, you know, taking over God's work. And that was dodgy stuff. It, well, that challenged it. Was a, it was a scientific question back then. Can we extend life? That, that was a natural question back then. It certainly was. And then once you get to a, a greater understanding of medicine in the 19th century, as the century progressed, then the, the notion that Robert Louis Stevenson had, that wrote the original Dr. Jekyll, as in Treacle, it was Mansfield who liked the idea of Jekyll being pronounced Jekyll because it sounded more sinister. Uh, that he, they thought, well, what about this potion that a man could drink and become a monster? It was also allegorical. It was allegorical that those who took to the demon drink or were still drugs, because, you know, there's some pretty hard drugs available on the streets. Dope, opiums, they are known. They're dope dens all over Limehouse, you know, all over, they're in, all over the place in London. And you'll see that depicted in the film From Hell, starring Johnny Depp, which is also about the Jack the Ripper crimes. You'll see the opium dens there. So the idea was, can man take drink, opium, drugs, uh, a decent man, a good man, can he take these things and turn into a monster? Uh, the, another question is, uh, Henry Irving, you were talking about, uh, he was not there at the time as well, correct? Was he with Bram, Bram Stoker with Henry? Henry Irving's on tour with the Lyceum Company. So uh, when you're looking at the sort of August-September period, they're, they're up to November, they're out and around the country. That's why the Lyceum stage is free, and Irving's performing around about the place. Okay, so then uh, my thought was, is here is uh, in the, we know that in the 1870s, Francis Tumbley had, was attempting to dominate Sir Henry Hall Kane, or Henry Hall Kane at the time, he was a young man, but I don't see Tumbley uh, at all being able to dominate someone like Henry Irving, even though Tumbley loved the theater, loved the actors, I could almost see Henry Irving not appreciating Tumbledy. And so I'm thinking that here's Henry Irving is gone at the time. And and uh, Mansfield's Jekyll and Hyde was being played prior to that in New York City and Boston and, and so where mm. Tumbledy was before that. So uh, I, I'd be curious to see the interaction of what Tumbledy was with respect with, with uh, Henry, uh, Henry Irving. It, Irving's a very interesting character. That he, Irving trusted Bram Stoker implicitly with really the, the business side of the theatre. Of course, Irving would have uh, acquaintances and people that he wished to invite into his exclusive circle that would sit after performances. You see, they had what they called the Beefsteak Club Room. Yeah. Now, this is not to be confused with the old Beefsteak Club, which is a gentleman's club in London. They used to meet in this room in the Lyceum. When Irving took over the theatre, they no longer met there. But it was on another occasion when Irving was working away and Stoker was looking after the theatre, 
that Bram Stoker thought, we've got uh, a room there. It's a junk room. It's, it's full of all sorts of boxes and stuff. And really, rather than sitting in the wings or on the end of the stage when everyone's gone home uh, and eating a sandwich and a, trying to get a brief bite to eat in the Lyceum after their performance, why don't we actually have a decent place to eat, a meal? And so he had the room cleared, put a lovely refectory table in it and decorated it with uh, Irving memorabilia. In a lot of ways it was a shrine to, it became, certainly became a shrine to Henry Irving. And it was there that they would have a proper menu and the guests that Bram Stoker thought would be worth having uh, for the benefit of the theatre, also for the benefit of the group who, who are interesting, who's in influential, who, you know, the actors and actresses that would like to join in too. So it wasn't just a male exclusive environment. And it would not surprise me at all that you see Bram Stoker was absolutely fascinated with Abraham Lincoln. And I actually found a poster uh, for talks at Toynbee Hall. Now, Toynbee Hall's in the east end of London. That's actually in the heart of Ripper territory. And Bram Stoker gave a talk there on Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, as an aside, uh, on the American tour of the Lyceum, uh, Bram Stoker got to meet another one of his heroes, Walt Whitman, the author of Leaves of Grass. And Whitman was also a, a great collector of uh, Lincoln memorabilia and the story of Lincoln. And when he passed away, he left that to Bram Stoker, his, his collection, his writings on Lincoln. So Bram certainly had a great interest in Lincoln, so much so it was Bram that encouraged Edwin Booth. Now, Edwin Booth is the brother of John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Lincoln. Right. So Bram's going to want to know him, so why not get, him, get to know him professionally? Because he was also a good actor, you know. Yes. Let's not taint him with John Wilkes Booth. You know, his brother uh, was, was a, a damn fine actor. And, and so there were nights when Booth would play Iago and Irving would play Othello. And then they would swap over the following week. Or sometimes they'd do it as a surprise the following night. They were that good. So you can imagine, right, we've got the assassin of Lincoln's brother sat, you know, you could sit at the beefsteak club table. It's the chance to talk. It's a chance to hear uh, the stories from the brother of the man who shot Lincoln. And I think because of the way Tumblety liked to embroil himself into the Lincoln conspiracy, being involved in the McLennan staff stories, you know, the yellow fever stuff, he could weave a tale. He had the charisma. And I think purely because they would be Bram would be intrigued by this man mm. that held such a grim hold over Hall Kane, and maybe even Hall Kane would be bolstered by because Bram was a big, strong man. 
I think we've got to have this man round the table. I want to see for myself. Who knows? Maybe <laughs> somewhere. Know, so, Neil, uh, uh, Al, do uh, you don't mind? We, we're going to talk for another two hours. <laughs> and I'm just, or or are we are we over our time? <laughs> no, we're 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 just about out of time now. So um, oh, uh, now uh, yeah, no, that's all right. Neil, do you have a website or a place that you'd like people to go if they want to follow up with you? If they want to follow up, look out for my book. Uh, Mike has spoken so very kindly and highly of it. It is the Dracula Secrets. Jack the Ripper and the Darkest Sources of Bram Stoker. Uh, it's published by History Press, and it's available. You can get it on, you know, online from Amazon, or, or can be ordered from good bookshops when we could go out and about. But get online, get a copy, and they'll be more than welcome. If they're really interested, you know, you can always find me via my, my publishers or find me on Facebook. Uh, and uh, yes, join, join the community and see our adventures in history. Well, one benefit of my copy is that mine's signed. <laughs> it, is. it is. And and again, I'd like to just say to all our friends and to all of the listeners, please just take care of yourselves. Be, be kind to each other. Keep safe and well. And, and I hope to share some stories of this remarkable period in time and some of the darkest tales in history. Uh, with with Alan and Mike, and thank you both for for having me on the show. Thanks, Neil. Fantastic. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs> By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis. And I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus. And it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets some thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. HouseOfMystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.